0: Hey y'all,
1: how's it going? I'm Scott. Welcome to my show. It's uh the Scott Horton Show. <laughs> Did you guys see this, man? I guess from this morning. I hadn't seen the video, but I I read the quote in a couple of places. There was a pastor. Uh warming up the crowd for donald trump this morning i think mark burns pastor mark burns warming up trump crowd says of bernie sanders who is jewish bernie's gotta get saved he's got to get jesus (laughs) can you believe that i know you're saying the exact same thing that i said jesus christ (laughs) are you serious Uh, Yeah, note to uh, Protestant pastors uh, trying to support Donald Trump. Think uh, you can leave the Jews and their relationship with the Messiah out of your pro-Trump speeches. You know, for his best interests is all I'm saying. Uh, Not that you care about other people's ownership over their own consciences. Because obviously you don't. But anyway... That's funny. I wonder if he had a part of his brain that said, hmm, maybe I shouldn't say that. And then another part of his brain said, yeah, no, that's a real good bet. Or whether it just didn't occur to him at all that, hmm. Yeah, if you might take offense to that. The Jews, they've heard of Jesus before. And, you know, they've made their decision, dude, to not agree with you. <laughs> amazing. Seriously amazing. Um but you know what? I mean how much trouble is Trump gonna get in for that? Somebody else has said it. I mean I'm not saying like oh that's the end of his campaign now or anything, but just isn't it kind of amazing? You gotta admit, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, um well hell, speaking of politics, I saw a thing this morning said uh Sanders is doing better and better in some of these polls in the Midwest. And perception is everything. Tomorrow is a huge day. Um, You know, the second Super Tuesday kind of thing going on. So, I guess things could change. I mean, if he really had momentum behind him, and if Hillary's really, you know, started failing, then the super delegates could change their votes, you know. I don't know if they'll have a real fight over it. But he's by far the stronger candidate against Trump. I mean, my prediction is uh, Trump versus Hillary Clinton, it's virtually guaranteed for Trump. Well, although I would add that he is enough of a kind of a, I say he's a complete freak-ass. I mean, it's all very planned out or whatever, but he does make mistakes sometimes, and he could really screw up. Um, he, it, it could blow up in his face. I shouldn't completely rule that out, but all things being equal... Between uh, him and Hillary Clinton, I think he's going to absolutely destroy her. But versus Bernie Sanders, I don't know, man. Because him and Bernie Sanders say a lot of the same things, only he obviously has no idea what he's talking about. And Sanders, even though he's a socialist, he at least knows how to read. If you compare the way that they speak, when they're both denouncing, oh, the trade deals that send all our jobs to Mexico and China and all this kind of thing. Sanders sounds like he actually knows a little bit about it. Whereas Trump sounds like he's decided that this is a good thing to say. Now, I don't know whether that'll really help Sanders or not. Maybe not. But I think the, the contrast between them is uh much better for the Democrats than with Hillary. Because, and see, here's, here's the real reason why. It's because Hillary Clinton is a criminal, right? It doesn't really matter that she destroyed Yemen. Because Americans don't care about dead Yemenis. They just don't. But she's personally corrupt, And she has corrupt written all over her face. We all know that's why she had her own private email server, so she could destroy 30,000 of them without any accountability. Take all of her worst crimes and bury them. All of her coordination with her daughter over how much money we're making at the foundation. And all those go straight in the recycle bin. Write some ones and zeros over those. We all know that. Donald Trump's going to completely destroy her. You know, um... You know, think about where she can be completely bought for $175,000 from Goldman Sachs. Like, he could just make such jokes about that. $175,000, I'll give you $175,000. Hey, watch, everybody. I'll give her $175,000 and she'll do whatever I say. You know, or whatever it is. He could just joke. Here, I'll write you a check right now. Do a (laughs) backflip. Start barking again. Um... You know, oh yeah, the amount of money I waste on uh, you know a golf game with some friends—that's how much it would it would take for me to own the secretary for the rest of her life. Her goose is cooked. But uh, anyway, Sanders—he's got worse economics than she does, even, which is almost unimaginable <laughs> if you think about it. Um, but he's not personally a scumbag. You know what I mean? I mean, he kind of is. If you look at the way he handled uh, the Gaza War 2014, but, yeah, and I don't know, man, maybe he is corrupt. He obviously, you know, can be bribed to support the F-35 and this kind of thing, but I doubt that there's anything like what you have with the Clinton Foundation, you know what I mean? That just, it can't compare. Foreign dictatorships giving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to her foundation and then she turns around and hooks them up, extra sweet arms deals and stuff like this with American public policy. Like, her only defense is that it's so blatantly corrupt that she couldn't possibly be that horribly, stupidly corrupt, right? Well, if that's true, then show us the speeches. Oh, I'll release my speeches as soon as every Republican releases their speeches. What? Huh? Sanders like, ah, here's all my speeches to Goldman Sachs. There are none. Match that, lady. Anyway. I hate them all, but I'm just saying. I'm trying to be an analyst. I'm trying to be interesting. Because people like talking about politics. I don't know why. But, you know, so Sanders doesn't have all the natural advantages that Obama had. Obama had a huge part of of the Democratic Party establishment behind him from the very beginning. And Sanders has not had that. And also... Obama played the, you know, the marketing package, the brand or character or whatever of Mr. Cool, the cool black guy. That was Saturday Night Live Um, had Hillary Clinton go, well, that wasn't fair because I was up against a cool black guy. But this time, you you know what I mean, just from a marketing point of view, he had that going for him. And plus, after George W. Bush, people were really looking for a Democrat. In fact, the fact that he had a Muslim sounding name was even better. It was a way for the the Americans on the very surface, with their very surface understanding of things, to try to sort of apologize to the people of the world for re-electing George W. Bush. The swing back the other way kind of deal with Obama. So he had all this money, he had all this political support, and then he had the branding of cool black guy that Sanders just can't match. On the other hand, Sanders does have grumpy old Jewish grandpa who says, apparently, exactly what he means, you know, wags his finger at you and says, here's what they're doing to us, and that can be some pretty convincing shtick, you know? He's got the the quote-unquote authenticity thing going for him, so... That can count. And look at who he's up against. The worst candidate in the world. I mean, I'm watching a Hillary rally on CNN right now. I can't believe these people are excited for this woman. I, what is the matter with y'all's brain? What could you possibly find about her that appeals to you? Other than her first woman president. Yeah, me and all 85 of my IQ points thought real hard about how that is the only priority. Other than that, what? Oh, not Trump. And that ain't going to save you, though. That's like grabbing onto a lead life preserver, dude. Anyway. All right, that's enough. No more politics for the rest of the show, I swear. I got uh, Grant Smith and Gareth Porter coming on, and we're going to talk about important news, wars, and your freedom, and that kind of deal. Hey, i I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, Al, Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or warstate.com. Alright guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton, it's my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm sitting here reading Gareth, I should be writing a blog entry. Today's show, Gareth and Grant. That's good enough, y'all know who I mean. Um, yeah, man, so, um, I'm writing up a blog entry for the stress blog over at scotthorton.org. That's my site where I keep my stuff. And, um, you can join up the chat room there, man. I've got a good group of guys that hang out in the chat room every day during the show. It's at scotthorton.org slash chat. It'd be even better if you would join it up too, scotthorton.org slash chat. Or uh, um, uh, it's IRC free node chat if you have a free standing chat type program. It's an IRC free node chat room. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. I'm also posting an update right now on Liberty.me where I do two internet type YouTube sort of TV show type things with uh, Jeff Tucker and Jacob Hornberger. Liberty.me. And then, yeah, I'm gonna put this tweet out right here, man. Okay, uh, oh yeah, and you follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. Follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. Cool. Um, I want to, uh, thank Ricky Herrera. I don't know if he actually listens to my weekly, sh- or my weekday show. I guess he probably doesn't. But he's, uh, the current Sunday morning, uh, board op at, uh, KPFK. I, I believe he's not a quote unquote producer. I think he's, you know, one of the new guys and is, you know, no offense, but, you know, merely a board op or something like that. But he totally hooked me up because my computer exploded. Literally the, the power supply blew out. It's like two months old. Power supply burnt out. Whole place, uh, well, this office still stinks like burning power supply. Could have started a fire and, killed me. Anyway, um, I'm sorry I don't remember the brand name or I'd tell you which one to not buy. Was it Acronis? Was that the one? I forget. now. Anyway, so bad power supply, broken computer, can't edit the show, can't send in my uh, Sunday show. So what happened was um, Ricky Herrera, my board op at KPFK, he heroically went and got the file, edited out all the commercials from the version that's uh, on the website right now, you know, the archive, and then he went ahead and did the introduction and everything, the intro and the outro, uh, for me, live on the air. Introduced the show, Scott Horton, he's interviewing Dan Simpson, it was the Dan Simpson interview. And so thank you, Ricky, for doing that, man. That's far above and beyond what uh you're supposed to do, what you have to do for your KPFK hosts on Sunday morning. So I really appreciate that, man. He could have just as easy let the the Buddhist hour play. Um, which if you're into Buddhism, Alan Watt does the Buddhism show right before my show on Sunday mornings on KPFK eight o'clock Pacific time. But anyway, so thank you very much, Ricky, for that. I appreciate that, dude. Very cool. All right. Uh, yes, I said that uh, Grant is coming up. Grant is having a huge conference about the Israel lobby and American foreign policy. It's coming up here with uh, this weekend and uh Grant Smith is from the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy if you are on the east coast and i don't care if you know you're live in miami or in bangor maine that's close enough you need to get your ass to dc go see these speeches and check out this conference uh, grant smith doing it again and um it's going to be great okay and then uh gareth is going to be on because gareth is going to be talking about what's important in Jeffrey Goldberg's article at The Atlantic about um, uh, Syria stuff. Well, and more than that. So it's it's very important. Um, it, it's a brand new article. Just hit at MiddleEastI.net. MiddleEastI.net. Kerry sought missile strikes to force Syria's Assad to step down. That's the piece, and we're going to be going over it with Gareth Porter here in just a little while. All right, now, and I'm still trying to get a hold of Eric Margulies. Speaking of, you know, the all-stars on the show today, I'm still trying to get a hold of Eric because he wrote a great piece, man, about North Korea. Look before you leap in North Korea. And this is Eric Margulies at his best right here, if you ask me, man, and I love everything he writes. The guy's an American hero. Uh, look Before You Leap in North Korea. Awesome, man. So if I can get him on the air to talk about that out loud where you guys can hear it, I promise I will do that for you. Um, I was trying to call him during the break. didn't work, but anyway. Um, all right. So where's my Iraq stories? I got a couple of Iraq stories. Well, first of all, this one's just off the top of my head. It's um, something that I mentioned to you guys before, I think. Maybe I didn't. Patrick Coburn last week had a piece, I guess probably a week ago, early last week, had a piece uh, where he talked about um, when he was on his way from Kurdistan down to Baghdad, he passed a gigantic convoy of military trucks headed up preparing for the battle for Mosul. Right? Um, And yet, I believe he said that uh, he didn't think it was going to be until probably next year or something like that. Anyway, I'm getting conflicting information about this, and I don't think anybody knows for sure. And I read an article. I actually would have. I almost ran this article on Antiwar.com in the viewpoints, but I didn't because at the end he sort of kind of recommends that something be done. It's very vague, but I don't run any articles on Antiwar.com that says that any... Americans need to do anything about anything. So if you wonder why your article didn't get run, it was your great idea that we rejected. (laughs) But anyway, uh, the other reason that I rejected this, even though it was very vague, his suggestion that like, well, maybe we could try to manage this or you know, something very vague like that. Uh, The other problem with it was, is the tagline at the bottom was Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And you know what that means? Israel. The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, the Israel Lobby in America, they're the ones who created WNIP, and it's just as bad as AEI or CSP or any of those, and what they study is how to lie you into war. Now, does that mean occasionally they'll have interesting articles that are worthwhile to read? Then, yeah, of course, you know? Um But they're still the bad guys, so I ain't running no Ep on my site. Um, but anyway, man, so the point is this, though, is that guy was saying, hey, Mosul could fall faster than we think because, check it out, the Iraqi army has, I forgot, I think he said two divisions up there, plus there are a ton of Bada Brigade and other Shiite militias who are, you know, coalescing and organizing up north, close to Mosul. Uh, I forgot how, how far away, within, you know, 20 miles or 50 miles or something of Mosul. And then, of course, plus the Kurdish Peshmerga have been getting ready and, you know, armed up and trained by the Americans all this time. And then on top of that, he said that there's been a huge, well, I don't know how huge, there's been an assassination program going on inside Mosul. Somebody, and I guess the implication here is just locals, are killing Islamic state leaders. And he goes on to point out that there are hundreds of thousands of fighting aged males in Mosul. And many of them are war veterans from Iraq War II or Army veterans from before that. And they might just take Mosul themselves. Hey, you own a business? Maybe we should consider advertising on the show. See if we can make a little bit of money. My email address is scott at scotthorton.org. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. First up on the show today, it's our friend Grant Smith from the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. That's IRMEP, I-R-M-E-P, org. And he's written a ton of books, I don't know, a dozen or something, about the criminal activities of the Israeli government and the Israeli lobby in the United States, including the theft of weapons-grade uranium and uh, all kinds of stuff. Divert is the latest book. And he has uh, helped to put on uh, two of these conferences, and this will be the third conference along these lines, anyway, at the National Press Club. It's Israel's Influence, Good or Bad for America. The first one was in 2014. And uh this one is taking place this Friday, if I counted on my fingers correctly, March the eighteenth, uh at the National Press Club in Washington, DC. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Grant? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. And uh
2: you did count your hands and fingers right. It's Friday and people need to get there early, eight o'clock, preferably, not nine AM. So it's gonna be big. It's uh probably I think we've had double the people sign up that we have in previous years, so I know. Oh really? Oh yeah. Great. <laughs> this is this is taking off, wow. and, uh you know, it's been building steadily.
1: The uh Well, now, the, wait a uh, minute. That one in 2014, was that yeah, not yeah. the biggest room at the National Press Club? It's the biggest room, but, you know, they had... Oh, they had you know, a balcony, though, right? They have balconies, yeah.
2: exactly. You're going to that- need
1: that balcony, buddy, I'm here to tell you, because <laughs> that place was packed.
2: Yeah, well, it's going to be packed again. We're not probably going to be able to keep one section walled off for lunch. They'll have to serve those outside, but, you know... This is going to be the most amazing event on this subject that's ever been held. And I just, I'm so excited about it because the number of students, journalists, uh concerned citizens, people who don't know anything about these topics, the number of people coming and the diversity that we see in that ticket uh, registration is just amazing. And the, uh, unlike other events where some of the, Some of the speakers had to go early, but we have asked every single one of them to hang around and be part of the conference and talk to people. And some of them are even uh, running little tables and exhibitions in the adjacent room, which is the second biggest room they have at the National Press Club. So if you really want to meet these people, these amazing speakers we have, you need to go and stream this event from your eyes, ears, and hands into your brain uh, and be a part of this historic event.
1: Awesome. All right. So, well, go on. You've got until 42. So <laughs> okay. just keep telling them about it.
2: Yeah. Okay. So we're opening up the Exhibition Hall and Registration at 8 a.m. in the National Press Club, and there'll be some welcoming remarks and housekeeping, but then we launch right into Panel 1 at 9 a.m., which is Israel's influence on Congress and government agencies. Uh, I'll be kicking off... Uh, with a historical review and review of some really interesting polling
1: data. Well, let's from, talk all uh, about that in the second segment about, give us a little preview of your talk.
2: Yeah, yeah. But okay. go ahead with the rest uh, for now. Okay. So then we've got Dr. Roger Matson, a uh, former, uh, executive at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and an ongoing industry consultant who is, uh, presenting his findings, uh, from his new book, uh, about the diversion of weapons-grade uranium from the United States. This is something he has been studying for decades and was involved in aspects of the investigation when it first started in the mid-'70s. Uh, so he will be also available later, uh, signing uh, his new book, as will Professor Kirk Beattie, who has uh, written an extensive study on Congress and how it shapes Middle East policy, um, and particularly the role of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. His analysis is unique because he has interviewed more than 150 staffers on the Hill who have said some incredible things about which bodies are present and not in the war of ideas on Capitol Hill, and just how influential... Uh, APAC is uh, in the minds of the uh, members of Congress. And so we then go on to an important keynote presentation by a uh, columnist at Haaretz, Gideon Levy, who has come in to talk about what politicians, members of Congress and media elites who are constantly visiting Israel on the dime of an APEC cutout organization, junkets that continue to go on, more than a thousand so far, uh, what they're being told as opposed to what's really happening on the ground and what harm that overall special relationship may be doing to the united states uh this is uh, an extremely important journalist who's coming from israel to give this presentation uh and again like all other speakers he's going to be available for media interviews interacting with people uh book signings etc cetera, etc cetera. so then we go into morning break exhibition hall our second major panel is israel's influence on u.s. foreign policy uh, it's being moderated by Dale Sprasansky, who's an editor at Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, which is also the co-sponsor, along with the American Educational Trust. So Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson is kicking off that panel. This is Secretary of State Colin Powell's former chief of staff. And he's not going to be talking about, you know, I don't know, minor things. He's diving deeply into how Israel's influence over the U.S. has affected America's strategic approach to the middle east and i can't think of a more timely topic than that uh jim loeb is coming on to give us a history and overview of american neoconservatives that jim yeah their role in promoting the 2003 invasion of iraq and how israel affects their thinking and then there'll be a, a drum roll and fireworks to go off as justin raimondo wait thinks, wait, wait let me say yeah.
1: about jim real quick yeah. For people who don't know, Jim Loeb has been writing about the neoconservatives since the 1970s. He knows everything about every single one of them. He's the world's greatest expert on their movement. And, and I mean, not the, oh, people who agree with them are all neocons. But I mean, you know, the actual 75 actual neocons in the world. He Absolutely. has got their ass. Sorry, and you, know,
2: and you know who doesn't know anything about them? Current college students and people who are maybe just coming into foreign policy and international relations right now, they don't know who the neoconservatives are. And uh, uh, other than Jim Loeb and certain other parts of the media, you hardly hear anything about them anymore, although they're still very active. Oh, the Scott Horton Show also does some reporting on them. But uh, there's <laughs> certainly another luminary at Antiwar.com, Justin Raimondo. He'll be the anchor of that panel and he'll be talking all about Israel and foreign policy issues in the presidential campaign, whether unconditional support for Israel has finally become a political issue, and whether Americans will ever have, uh, or at least in this election cycle, any sort of choice at the voting booth be, between these two big schools of thought, neoconservatism and pro-Israel Middle East doctrine. Uh So this will be, of course, uh, right before lunch, and then we'll be talking about uh, responding to Israel's influence on campus and in court. There are, are a number of extremely interesting legal actions that have been filed in D.C. District Federal Court. Janet McMahon, an editor at The Washington Report, will be moderating that panel. The first step is Tarek Rady, uh, who will discuss his activism at George Mason University uh, and kind of give an overview of the often misreported key aims of uh, Palestinian solidarity movements on campuses and the attempts to thwart them uh, on campus. Maria LaHood, who's a lawyer at the Center for Constitutional Rights, will be there talking about concerted attempts to silence criticism of Israel in the U.S., in particular looking at a, a plaintiff she defended, Stephen Salita, um, and the case of Olympia Co-op and other attacks on speech that uh, are occurring right now, including some legislative attempts to ban uh,
1: various parts of this movement. Susan, yeah, I mean, this problems. is a huge issue right now. It uh, is. It's, uh, it's the free, free speech rights of Palestinians in America yeah, and BDS yeah. and all this stuff. I'm sorry to stop you, but uh, we got to take this break. We'll be right back, everybody, with Grant Smith. He's telling us all about his awesome conference this Friday hey, in L. D.C. L. Hey, i I'll Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, I'm Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer, Jeffrey Tucker, every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF Founder and President Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, you guys. Welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my so Scott Horton Show. Et cetera, et cetera, I'm talking with Grant Smith because the Institute for Research, Middle Eastern Policy, is putting on a thing this Friday with uh, the Washington, uh, I always say it wrong, Wormia, the Middle East Report thingamajig. They're putting on this deal, Israel's influence, good or bad for America. It's at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. It costs 80 bucks and you get lunch and many speeches and panel discussions with uh, the very best that uh, Grant could have possibly picked to come and uh, present their case here, um, Israel's influence—good or bad—for America. It's this Friday in Washington D.C. at the Washington at the uh, National Press Club. Get there early, eight o'clock in the morning, um, or you know, come later if you like sleeping in. But anyway, show up. It's uh, going to be great. I was there two years ago, and it was awesome. And this one promises to be even better. And he hadn't even finished telling you about all the great people that are going to be here. And make sure and save yourself some time for, uh, to tell us a little bit about the talk that you're going to give, too. But uh, please continue, Grant, if you would.
2: Yeah, great. Um, so if people want to get that $80, $80 price, and that includes a delicious box lunch plus a reception that follows with some nice beverages, uh, you need to enter the discount code PARTNER2016 uh, or INFLUENCE, all caps, and you'll get that $20 off. So I think it's important that uh, people capture that value. Um, and if you're a member of the press or a student currently enrolled in college, you can just go to israelsinfluence.org and, and request a free ticket, and you will oh, great. get a free ticket. Yeah. So I might have to be up in the balcony, though, at this point. So anyway, we were on Susan Abulhawa, and her presentation is all about why Uh, a group of Palestinians and um, Palestinian-Americans are suing the U.S. Department of Treasury in order to hold this key part of U.S. government accountable for all of the tax-deductible charitable funding that they watch flowing between the U.S. and Israel into Israeli settlements and other activities that are displacing indigenous peoples in that region. Uh, Her entire legal team... Uh, Martin McMahon in particular, who's leading up her lawsuit, uh, will be available and present to talk about these types of initiatives. So that's another added benefit of actually being there uh is to be able to to talk to such people who'll be circulating around in the audience and helping out with questions if necessary. Huaida Araf uh is going to be talking about another lawsuit, um, another legal team about uh, the flotillas that were intercepted in international waters and how they're responding to that with a legal challenge as well. It'll be an afternoon break at 3 o'clock. At 325, Rula Jabril comes on uh, and talks a little bit about uh, voices that are censored slash prohibited on mainstream media and how it's helping spread uh, Islamophobia. If anyone wants, uh, anything recent on, on Rula Jabril, all they should do is go to a recent article about, uh, her on The Intercept about how a former APAC, uh, PR guy tried to get her knocked out of a Voice of America appearance and swap in a Washington Institute for Near East policy analyst in her stead. This uh-huh. is the level of fear that APAC and other parts of the lobby have of this woman for her very frank and professional analysis uh, that's been given all over the world. She's a journalist who started out in the region and uh, being a broadcaster on Italian te- television as an anchor. Fascinating person. Uh, you interviewed her, you know, but uh, she'll be there as well. And then our final panel is uh, going to pick up on Israel's influence on mainstream media. Philip Weiss will be there from Mondo Weiss. I know you've had him on your show many times. He's going to be giving a an analysis of whether mainstream media of Israel-Palestine is getting better, getting worse, some of both. Uh, from his unique perch, he probably writes four or five articles about that topic, analyzing mainstream coverage every single month. So that's going to be fascinating. And then finally, the producer of Valentino's Ghost, Why We Hate Arabs, which is a documentary that answers questions about why both media and government perpetuate storylines that create loathing among many Americans of Arabs, Muslims, and Islam. There will be a special screening of that starting at 8 o'clock and running up until we begin this program, but she will be kicking off uh, a discussion at the end as well with 14 minutes of clips carefully selected from that. Uh that should create a very interesting and dynamic final question and answer period,
1: so that hey, you know, yeah. last year uh it wasn't her it was somebody else on on s- somewhat the same subject. it was right when I tuned in on the live stream was right when they were wrapping up. I think I saw about five minutes of it, but the point being yeah. all the spin all the anti Muslim and anti arab spin in Hollywood movies going back for decades
2: yeah it's uh that would have been Jack Shaheen. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, perhaps uh, he also showed clips from his documentary, right? Um, which was kind of a, a similar topic. It was cultural stereotypes, and he also showed clips. Uh, from his his documentary so yeah it's i think it's i think it it never stops being timely uh <laughs> but yeah, definitely particularly... powerful
1: stuff very educational stuff i mean i think Absolutely. any of, any of us could have guessed about that but it's something else when you actually see a real presentation from somebody who did the work you know
2: right it's the homework that counts yeah and these people have all they're all experts in their own right on one or other aspects that can be put together into a conference about israel's influence of course a lot of the influence is from lobbying organizations here acting on Israel's behalf. Uh, but it, the overall theme, I think, organizes and summarizes quite well the expertise of every single one of these panelists. Right.
1: All right, now, and did he say something about live streaming earlier? Because I, I live in Texas, something. and I'm not going to be able to skate all the way there.
2: Yeah, for those of you who can't come and stream it again from your eyes and ears to your brain, you c- You can, what you need to watch out for uh, are at the conference red website announcements israel's influence excuse me israel's influence.org airmap.org mm-hmm. uh, wrmea.org the washington report the co-sponsor uh, watch out for upcoming announcements of video streams so that if you can't make it if you can't come and and be part of this mm-hmm. uh, that you can at least capture that uh, from your desktop and so. people
1: can follow earmap on twitter as well correct Right, you can follow IRMEP
2: on Twitter. We'll certainly put out any announcements. Uh, Israel's Israel Influence with no S on Twitter. Uh, it'll also be tweeted from there.
1: Again, the main website is Israel'sInfluence.org. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So, all right, now and tell us a little bit about your topic too. Again, we're well, talking everybody about for for people tuning in late this Friday, the eighteenth. National Press Club, Washington D.C., all day, awesome conference on the Israel lobby in the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, my topic is really about, uh, you know, this, this whole concept that Benjamin Netanyahu has when he was talking to West Bank settlers in 2001. Um, what is it, why does Benjamin Netanyahu think America is something you can easily move, which is his view of America? And really going through ten different ways that Israel moves America uh, by using its influence uh, in the United States, mainly uh, as a as a product of 336 lobbying uh, parts of the lobby, not all of them lobby. Um, Israel affinity organizations that take various actions, sometimes in concert, sometimes just regionally, sometimes very locally, to promote agendas and to promote um, the latest program, whether it was the uh, big drive for a confrontation with Iran and then later against the Iranian uh, nuclear program agreement that came out last year whether it's constant pressure on media organizations, whether it is local actions uh, which are not reported as lobbying activities and the aid gotten out of state organizations, whether it's economic development or trade missions or out-building buildings for Israel affinity organizations with U.S. taxpayer funding from the state coffers or buying Israel bonds. So really drilling down on how... Israel affinity organizations move America, and also some of the, of course, bad outcomes of that. And you and I were joking around a little bit, uh, and you gave me a great idea, and I've got to credit you for this, uh, about what is the end results of the constant... Disinformation that comes out of this lobby, which terrifies- Wait, wait, wait,
1: wait, wait. The drums playing. I want to make sure the live audience can hear the information one more time. And then I'm sorry, you can finish up the anecdote, uh, over time in the break here. But everybody go to israel'sinfluence.org. It's the, the, uh, Washington report on Middle East affairs and, uh, org and, uh, Grant Smith's group. Great conference this Friday at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. israel'sinfluence.org. Hey, Alright, now go ahead, dude. Okay, alright. Uh,
2: so, you know, we are somewhat of an island of misperception. Uh, right before, in 2014, before the, it came to a head. Wait, you and of, me or the USA? <laughs> no, no, no. Us in the United States, Americans, people who hold US citizenship and simply live here. Um so, uh, you gave me an idea. Do we have time for this? How much more time do we have?
1: Oh, we got six minutes now. Go oh, ahead. Six minutes. We're over six time minutes. into the break. So, I mean, I got to call Gareth in, in five minutes or whatever, but you can go All ahead. All right. Okay. Well, I mean, you asked me, you said, Grant, do you think,
2: do you think Americans even know who occupies who? And that I thought was a very poignant question. And so I did four different polls using Google consumer research. And I found out if you ask a Canadian, whether Israelis occupy Palestinian land or Palestinians occupy Israeli land, the majority, some 51%, think that the Israelis occupy Palestinian territory. If you take that question across the pond to the U.K. and ask the Brits, 57.7% think that Israelis occupy Palestinian territory. If you go down south to Mexico and say de siguientes crees que sea cierto? And ask them the same question, you find out that fifty five percent of Mexicans, the majority, in all of these countries, think Israelis occupy Palestinian territory. Only in the United States, an island of misperception in the northern hemisphere, uh, do you find forty eight point two percent think that the Palestinians occupy Israeli land, and that is the majority, or rather the majority of Americans, when you ask them the most fundamental question driving conflict right now, they think the situation is opposite of what it actually is. And this is, I think, uh, a statistically significant red warning flag. How can you possibly conduct policy... When every single American has this conception that not only is the United States in grave danger, but we have this ally on the other side uh, of the Atlantic that is similarly valued, looking out for us, uh, a victim of these issues and not uh, not the aggressor. You know, how can we possibly have good policies when so many Americans believe things that are fundamentally uh, flawed and misinformed? Misinformation basically yeah. um, it's so, really
1: amazing forty nine point two to thirty nine point eight it says here yeah absolutely so I mean, is just... so it,
2: I, mean it, it, I think it's I think it's illuminating. this is obviously not the kind of poll that Gallup is going to take. this is not the kind of thing that is going to be reported uh, by establishment media but I mean it's embarrassing frankly, and it's it's the kind of information people can use to begin to say, look. You know, if we can't even have a serious fact-based discussion because so many people are misinformed, where is this misinformation coming from? And why am I, in the form of tax-deductible charitable contributions given by any other people, subsidizing the gap and subsidizing this information indirectly, uh, yeah. by our very pliable federal agencies, which rarely do anything uh, and the reason why they're subject to so many lawsuits rarely do anything uh, to enforce laws and, and to really confront uh, some of these major problems, whether it's illegal settlement funding or or just the propaganda that's that's driving bad policy. So a uh, very in-depth look, fact-based look, polling-based look, and uh, happy that uh, Kirk Beatty will be really looking at Congress. I'm not going to be talking so much about that, but rather just what's going on across America.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I gotta say too here that I'm so disappointed in the Canadians. I mean, 51 to 34, I guess is pretty good, but 51. And then the Brits too, with all their history in Palestine and, and the world wars and everything else. And they're at least, you know, on that side of the Atlantic Ocean from here. And yet, uh, they don't seem to be doing, you know, that much better than, well, the Canadians, anyway. The Americans are just shameful here, but right <laughs> but, well, for the well, Brits to be where they are on this, I think yeah. it's still, you know, they're they're pretty out of bounds here. Fifty seven percent when that ought to be ninety. Come on,
2: right? But still, you know, still the highest score.
1: Yeah, well, that's cool true. Countries. So, right. yeah. and for the reasons I just cited, probably just the just the fact of geography. But well, comments in
2: that survey are fascinating too. Uh, one, the first person compared it to two fleas arguing over which owns the dog they live on. So there are a lot of very dry Brit comments on that (laughs) as well. But he's, uh, it's a fascinating survey and it's one that we'll be talking about, uh, at some length during this conference. So, uh, the other one, of course, is, uh, we also surveyed and I, 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 again, what Americans think of foreign aid to Israel. Uh, the same uh, survey that we did in 2014, we'll be looking at changes in public opinion on that as well. So very important uh, to do these types of surveys. And it's good to have a forum, whether it's your show or this conference, to be able to tell people about these results and what they imply.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for breaking the story here. It's bad news, but I'm happy to hear it. Um, all it's right, again, everybody, good idea huh?
2: Don't forget that. It was a very good idea you gave me on the
1: last show. Oh, huh. well, there you go. <laughs> You're welcome. um all right, so Rula jebriel, uh Gideon levy, wow, that's gonna be great, man. I'm a big fan of his uh Susan Albulhawa, um uh, uh you'll have to say who Huwada Araf, Kirk James Beatty, Katherine Jordan, Maria Lahood, Jim Loeb, yay, Roger J. Matson, Tarek Roddy, and Justin Ramondo, along with Grant Smith, the great Philip Weiss, our hero um and then Lawrence Wilkerson. Uh, making up, uh, doing penance for his role in lining us into the war in Iraq. Good for him. Janet McMahon, who is great. And, uh, Delinda Haney, Dale, Sp- uh, Spruzanski. Right. Yep. All right. So everybody go to israel'sinfluence.org. That's israel'sinfluence.org and, uh, get your tickets. It's this Friday, the 18th of march at the national press club in washington dc uh you can get there it will be awesome thank you so much grant appreciate it thanks for spreading the word hell yeah all right we'll be right back here with gareth You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still. If you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, I'll Scott here. On average, how much do you think these interviews are worth to you? Of course, I've never charged for my archives in a dozen years of doing this, and I'm not about to start. But at patreon.com slash Show, you can name your own price to help support and make sure there's still new interviews to give away. So what do you think? Two bits? A buck and a half? There are usually about 80 interviews per month, I guess, so take that into account. You can also cap the amount you'd be willing to spend in case things get out of hand around here. That's patreon.com slash Show. And thanks, y'all. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. Oh, good. Eric Margolis is going to be here in the third hour, uh, to talk about his North Korea piece, which is great uh, for a lot of reasons. Great because it's a great article, and great because then you don't have to hear me blab for half an hour. So that'll be perfect. Um, all right. But now we go to our good friend Gareth Porter. Um, and he has a brand new piece out, just hit this morning. Kerry sought missile strikes to force Syria's Assad to step down. And this is Gareth's review and commentary, as G. Gordon Liddy would put it, on the Obama Doctrine. Jeffrey Goldberg's uh, massive piece on uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy in the Atlantic, which I uh, discussed with Jacob Hornberger on the Liberty.me show last week, if y'all want to check that out. But anyway, uh, we got Gareth's take, which promises to be awesome. So welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Gareth? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great. I appreciate you joining us. On Twitter, the guy says, they should just call it the Scott and Gareth show. And I think probably, you know, it would be like that, except I'd be taking up too much of your time. Uh, you, you got to have time to write this stuff for me to interview you about. But anyway, if, if I'm Mr. White, you're Clark Kent, dude. You do a great job. And um, even though I don't pay you because I don't have any money. Uh, but whoever does pay you, good for them. Uh, the book is Manufactured Crisis, by the way. That's a little something I can do. Manufactured Crisis, the book on Iran's nuclear program. Everyone else is wrong about everything. Gareth Porter is the only one who got 100% right on Iran's nuclear program. Manufactured Crisis. Buy it and read it. Okay. Now, this article... Goldberg wrote up a thing. He had extensive access to Obama and all his people. We all know in this audience, uh, who Jeffrey Goldberg is. And, you know, he's the Bob Woodward of, of Barack Obama here, basically, the, the insider access, uh, journalist. So, what'd you learn, Gareth?
0: Well, you know, what, what to me is, is, uh, it's not, it's not the main story that, a uh, Goldberg tells but I think it's an important part of the story which really deserves uh, much more uh, press coverage than it has gotten. Uh, you know, no major uh, news source except I think CNN uh, did a squib on it uh, but but the other news uh, news outlets have really remained silent about this story and that is how uh, John Kerry Secretary of State John Kerry really uh, pushed very very hard. Uh, for a number of months, we, we don't have the exact time, uh, in this story when Kerry began to request, uh, that the Obama approve cruise missile strikes on, uh, Syrian government targets in order to, as he put it, send a message to Assad that he must agree to step down.
1: And we're and talking we're,
0: about in, in, uh, 2013? In twenty, no, no, I'm talking about uh, now. I'm talking about 2015, 2016. Oh, okay. Uh, After, uh, essentially, I mean, it's not clear whether they began. uh, I suspect the the implication is that the request by Kerry for cruise missile strikes uh, began before the Russian intervention. um, You know, because uh, clearly he was beginning to he 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 turned to the subject of Syrian uh, peace negotiations once the uh, agreement with Iran was wrapped up in mid July. Uh, he began to uh, work on the Syrian issue. And uh, my supposition uh, is that he began the uh, the request for missile strikes uh, soon after that because it was essential from his point of view to uh, to maximize the pressure on the Syrian government as soon as he began that effort. Mm-hmm. But it's not explicitly stated uh, precisely when the, the request began. But but Goldberg does say over the past year, which implies that they began before September of t- 2015. But clearly, once the Russian intervention began uh, at the end of September last year, then we know that Kerry stepped up the pressure on Obama, saying now we've got to have this. Uh, otherwise, he told Obama and he told Goldberg, I don't really have any uh, leverage. Well, I'm, I'm supposing that he, you know, Goldberg must have gotten much more from Kerry than he let on about this, although he did talk about an interview with him in which he asked him point blank, are you more willing to, uh, to, to take action, uh, in Syria than than Obama is, and Kerry owned up to that very freely. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. All right. And so then, now you mentioned about the tow missiles here that, that led, that helped the, the so called Army of Conquest, which was just the two faces of Al Qaeda in Syria, right? Arar al Sham right. and the al Nusra Front there. Well, uh, so this is, this is the backstory. So of- this, it was, uh, do I understand you right? That you're saying, once, once they took Idlib, that that was when it seems to you, Kerry, really started pushing to go ahead all the way to Damascus. Now,
0: well, you no, know, I think I think that there's a larger timeline here that has to be considered right. as right. as one piece of it. I don't I don't uh, sort of single out in my story or, or in my understanding of the timeline of of the the requests for for missile strikes, the the Idlib uh victory! I think that I didn't mean a to say you did. I was just asking. Yeah. No, I so so I want to go back to 2013, as you correctly uh asked uh, earlier, just a few moments ago. Um The role that that Kerry played in 2013 is crucial to understanding what happened in regard to the Obama administration's policy in Syria, and it's now much clearer, I think. Uh, but but if you go back to 2013, what is so striking here is that. Uh, really, almost as soon as he became Secretary of State, one of, uh, Kerry's first moves was to try to get Obama to agree, uh, to a much more aggressive, uh, program of assistance to the, uh, the armed opposition in Syria, which, which meant already by that time, early 2013, it really meant that, uh, inevitably there was going to be a strengthening of the position of Al-Qaeda in Syria, that is Al-Nusra Front, because it was, it had already been, uh, reported in the news media and it was clearly the, uh, the finding of the U.S. intelligence community that Al-Qaeda had a, a, a strong, uh, really, uh, the, the strongest position within the armed opposition was held by Al-Nusra Front. Uh, they did so in collaboration, close collaboration with Arar al-Sham. The two of them played a, domi- a a dominating role in the armed opposition. So, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the national security team, uh, in general and John Kerry in particular knew that in pressing for a much more aggressive Program of, uh, military assistance to the opposition, they were going to be strengthening the position of al-Nusra Front and Arar al-Sham. No, no question about it. Uh, so, so when he did that, that was really the first, uh, of a series of moves that were, uh, intended by Kerry to, uh, set up a situation where he could bring about a negotiated uh, solution to the Syrian problem that would involve, of course, the, the President, uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad stepping down. That was clearly, from his point of view, an absolute necessity. So what was going on was that he was building up pressure on the Syrian regime, uh, to get Assad to agree to step down as part of this process. And, uh, so the next move then, and, and, and of course, This was taking place in early 2013. It's essentially, uh, it it is essential to know that in early 2013, the, uh, the Assad regime was on the offensive. They were quite successful in pushing back the, uh, the armed opposition. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, what Kerry was doing here was trying to uh, play catch-up ball. He was trying to increase the pressure on a very urgent basis. Uh, at that point in early 2013. And uh, a big part of the story that, that I tell in my article is that uh, Kerry was the one who was pushing the idea that the Assad regime was carrying out chemical weapons attacks
1: uh, in the spring of 2013. See, that's what see, I was, was, was going to ask you. Ask. The trial balloons trial. on the Sarin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. We'll be right back, everybody, with Greg Gareth Porter right after this. Hey, i I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson & Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson-Robertson, 1-800-874-9760, or stop by rrbi.co. All right, you guys, welcome back. Well, during the break, I tried to queue it up, but I couldn't find it. But if you guys go to, uh, if you just type in Scott Horton, North Korea, Iran, then it'll come up. It's the speech I gave in San Angelo, Texas, April 24th, 2013. And uh, at the very end of the speech, in the questions and answers, uh, we're talking about Syria. And at one point in there, I said, and if you want to know what Israel's position is on this, then all you got to do is look at how they were jumping up and down, screaming, accusing Assad of a chemical weapons attack the other day. And John Kerry put out a statement that basically said, Shh, not yet. Just wait. We're going to do that here soon. <laughs> and that was the way I paraphrased it anyway uh, in that speech. On April the twenty fourth, two thousand and thirteen, uh, and then that's exactly what they did. Uh, I
0: pay tribute to that one, uh, uh, to you on that one, uh, Scott. You well, it's you know, go- it's
1: Jason Ditz gets all the credit. You know, news for every important thing on the planet Earth you need to know. Man, I mean, simple as that. That kid, he is just on it. On so, it.
0: so that was exactly what was happening at that moment. You're you're absolutely right. The uh, the Israelis were clearly pushing for uh, a finding by the United States that Assad was using uh, chemical weapons um against the opposition and uh, and Kerry was clearly building a case at that point uh he was he was in the process already of using that as a, a key part of a strategy uh, to to sort of uh, trap and trap the Obama administration or Obama himself into uh, a situation of of going to war in Syria and uh and and we know from a, a very a nice piece of reporting in in October of 2013 in the New York Times that in June Kerry went to the White House with a paper that uh made the argument that uh indeed uh they knew that Syria had used chemical weapons repeatedly and that unless uh Obama uh, did something about this uh that that Assad would feel empowered to uh, continue to do it even more and so this was uh a key move by Kerry uh which clearly was uh, accompanied by uh an effort to to get Obama to agree to this much uh uh much enhanced uh uh program of uh, assistance to the to the opposition to the armed opposition now uh, of course we we know you know the big the big story that that followed which was the august 21st sarin attack the alleged uh, sarin attack uh that that occurred on august 21st 2013 and at that point uh kerry was the one who was uh, of course pushing the hardest for uh, uh, cruise missile attacks as the response. And at that moment, uh, originally, of course, the President uh, Obama agreed uh, to, to do so and then he changed his mind. And we now know that one crucial factor in his thinking at that moment was that uh, the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, came to him personally, uh, out of the blue, unexpectedly, and told him that, in fact, the intelligence on the alleged sarin attack by Assad was not a slam dunk quote unquote now when when Clapper says it's not a slam dunk against the background of his uh, of, of the, the former CIA director George Tenet claiming that it was a slam dunk on right. Iraq you know something's up.
1: Well, and of course, Clapper was the head of the National Reconnaissance Office at the time and got Iraq completely wrong and well, exactly. hid behind that, oh, well, Saddam must have sent it all to Syria with Putin's help and all that crap back then. That's who Clapper right. is. And,
0: and so so that <laughs> makes it, I mean, I don't know how much Obama understood about that at that moment. I, I, I can't comment on that. But right.
1: and, and by the way, this is in the new, uh, we haven't known this until this only just came out in the right. same Goldberg piece here. Exactly. That exactly. Clapper, again, this is how important this is. Clapper went to the president and said, "Oh, I can't vouch for the intelligence here, boss." Done.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, you know, we don't know exactly what words he used, but it was enough uh, to shake Obama's confidence in the intelligence, um, and and uh, among other considerations, that led him then to back away from uh, from the cruise missile strike that had been that he'd agreed to previously.
1: And we already knew that um, because of Phil Giraldi and other former CIA officers. I think maybe. Uh, Lang had written about there some that the CIA analysts were going to resign rather than put their names on uh, any kind of uh, intelligence assessment at the time. And that was why they put out a government assessment, right. which was right. a brand new re- invented thing that they came up with, exactly. which, it, which means it was written by the White House, not by the CIA.
0: Right. And, and Clapper clearly was playing a political role here in, you know, in, in giving them some kind of statement that they could use. Uh, you know, that that DNI was on board with this. Mm-hmm. Uh But but at the same time, he was clearly worried about uh, the fact that that his his reputation was going to be at stake on this. So anyway, that that was a key, a key element in the decision not to go to war.
1: Right. Uh, and you know. and the way he phrased it was, I just got effed over on this. It was all uh-huh. about poor little John Kerry. A bunch of people were not going to have their lives exploded apart and it was going to reflect badly on him. For getting right, too far exactly. out ahead of the president. It's,
0: it's all about his ambition to get a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, for, for a combination of Iran and Syria. That was <laughs> clearly what was on his mind. Yeah, but we look, gotta this, start this war so I can get my medal. Yeah, the final, the final piece of this puzzle though is, uh, coming back, uh, circling back to the, uh, to the tow missile uh, decision, which was, uh, in, late 2013, we don't know exactly the date that it was made, but we know that by uh, late October or November, uh, the Defense Department was officially notifying Congress that they were selling 15,000 tow anti-tank missiles to Saudi Arabia. Now, of course, that was a giveaway to anybody who was paying attention, who has, was not totally asleep, that this was going to be used in Syria, because there was no other need for these on the part of the Saudis. And, uh, of course, they began then to dole them out to their favorite groups in Syria. And again, uh, clearly the the Obama administration, and John Kerry in particular, knew that they were going to be strengthening the, uh, the Al-Nusra Front, Arar al-Sham led coalition or, or command, particularly in Idlib, uh, for a, uh, for a, uh, a, a, a major offensive to push back, uh, the, the Assad regime. So, so this was going to be a, uh, aimed at a game, a game-changing, uh, balance of, of power in, in Syria militarily, um, and this was uh, this was an extremely risky decision that Obama went along with. I'm quite convinced. Again, this is uh, implied in uh-huh. the in the timeline. He went along with this because, of course, he was on the defensive politically because he didn't go to war by agreeing to the missile strikes. Right. Right.
1: Well, uh, yeah, this really um, helps enhance the understanding of of what they were doing and how how much worse they made it. While you know, in a in a carryite effort to make it better by escalating to try to force a, a solution, they didn't get all. They got was the escalation and not the solution. Exactly. They
0: and and you know what? I mean, this reminds me very much of the encounter that John F. Kennedy had with his national security bureaucracy. It was, of course, a different cast of characters, but it's the same the same storyline, that he was under terrific pressure from key national security officials. In that case, it was McNamara and McGeorge Bundy who were leading the charge, trying to get him to agree in, in 1961 to put uh, combat troops into South Vietnam. And uh, he knew it was wrong. He he, he uh, did not agree to it. But then he agreed to let them send uh, several thousand advisors, quote-unquote, to South Vietnam, and it was the beginning of the kind advisors of. Advisors
1: meaning rangers mostly, right?
0: Well, no, it was actually, it was a combination of special forces and, uh, uh, you know, uh, ground troop advisors and, uh, more importantly, most importantly, Air Force, uh, pilots actually, you know, who were f- flying combat missions, uh, in the guise of being advisors, uh, in these two-seater planes. Nice. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Hey, did you know um, – oh, check it out. I mean, we're in the break anyway, but uh, this, this just came to my mind. It was uh, former Ambassador Dan Simpson. Do you know him or know of him?
0: I know of him, yes.
1: Okay, so he writes for the Pittsburgh something or other. He was right. really great on the show last week about Afghanistan, and then he started oh. going off extemporaneously about Yemen and all kinds of things. And I'm not exactly sure his phrase here, uh, whether he knew it or he was – I think he said he had heard this, not just he was guessing, that – there were american co-pilots in the saudi jets bombing yemen not just refueling them but even you uh, know white boys that. flying in the back seats of those f15s that's
0: interesting i mean he he seemed to know something inside about it i mean that he was, uh, he
1: was that. It'd, be, it'd be worth going back to listen to it again yep. i think now that i think of it but yeah he had heard it before somewhere uh, I, I should ask giraldi that he probably would have heard that
0: well, that would be a huge story if it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I was uh, even joking in my um in my book proposal that I did. I made the joke that it's even reported that the Americans are holding the Saudi pilots tiny little hands all the way to the targets. <laughs> and then apparently like, no, I really had that right. They're sitting in the back seat maybe. All right. Well, we'll see. I mean, oh, doing- I got to go, man. I'm sorry. I'm late. I got to get Margulies on the line here. Thanks, Gareth. You're great, dude. I, I-, I appreciate it. Y'all, that is the uh, heroic Gareth Porter. What would we do without Gareth Porter? Am I right? Seriously. Kerry sought missile strikes to force Syria's Assad to step down. <sighs> Sigh in parentheses there at the end. MiddleeastEye.net. MiddleeastEye.net. And the book, of course, is Manufactured Crisis. Buy it and read it, please. Oh, Margulies in a second. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and security, the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms, on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey guys, welcome back. Yeah, we got the greats on the show today, man. Next up is our friend Eric Margolies. He's the author of War at the Top of the World and American Raj Liberation or Domination. And he writes at ericmargolese.com. Spell it like Margolis. Ericmargolese.com. And uh, of course, he writes at lewrockwell.com and at uns.com. And uh, that's the one I want to talk about is this. Look Before You Leap in North Korea, a very important article by Eric Margolis at unsunz.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Eric? I'm fine. Glad to be back with you, as always. Uh, very happy to have you here. Big news. Uh, not just blah, blah, same old bluster, but uh, military exercises going on um, in South Korea. Please tell us all about it.
3: Well, right now, uh, there are 15,000, maybe 20,000 US troops, most of whom are based in South Korea, and uh, 300,000 South Korean army and Air Force personnel Navy personnel, uh, staging war games. Uh, but these war games are right on the border, right next to North Korea. Uh, there are amphibious landings, air assaults, all kinds of stuff. Uh, all clearly aimed at mimicking a U.S.-South Korean invasion of North Korea. This happens every every year. The U.S. media plays it up as innocent military training programs, but these are a very warlike procedure, and as always, it drives the North Koreans crazy.
1: All right, now, assuming the premise of the policy that, well, we've got to keep our troops there and they've got to be prepared for this, is there anything wrong with them training? I mean, don't they have to?
3: Well, this is a very militant form of training. It's training right next to North Korea.
1: And all at once, everybody all together now kind of thing, huh? With the That's-
3: U.S. 7th Fleet offshore and U.S. units in Okinawa and Japan at high readiness, uh, it's clearly, it appears to be war preparation. Now, I have to remember that in 1973, when the Egyptian army managed to cross the Suez Canal and drive through Israeli fortifications uh, defending the Sinai, that they did it because they kept doing these military maneuvers and they bring the troops right up to the border and then the Egyptians would withdraw. And they did it so many times that the Israelis... Said, ah, it's just another exercise. Well, one day it wasn't. It was an actual invasion that caught the Israelis flat footed.
1: Mm. So in other words, certainly from the North Korean point of view, this is not just another, you know, something. This is they are getting ready. I remember reading, I guess it would have been Woodward's book, The Commanders, about the First Gulf War and the Panama War, where he talked about that too, where it was they changed the exercises and then and guess what i mean they train they changed them to the exact maneuvers they would be doing in a couple of months when they invade the country they're based in
3: that's right and the uh, north koreans uh, have there's been so much uh against them uh so many attacks regime change calls all this kind of stuff and the republicans fulminating that uh, Kim, uh, baby Kim, uh, Kim Jong Un uh, has got to feel increasingly nervous. He's he's surrounded by hostile military forces. There are at any time a good a good twenty uh, plots going on to overthrow his government. Most of them staged by the South Koreans and the U.S. Uh, China has gotten increasingly irritated with uh, Kim. And Kim is under, you know, uh, domestic pressures to uh, keep his people under control and also to prevent a palace coup. So there's a lot of tension. He must be very nervous.
1: Yeah. So you say the CIA's uh, got operations or who's trying to overthrow him with American backing inside the North? The the,
3: the CIA, but... I, I think, mean,
1: 20 at any given time. I immediately thought, well, you mean inside the military, of the Communist Party, but you're talking about people working for the U.S. or the South? Uh,
3: that's right. Most of this activity is done by the South Korean Intelligence Agency, uh, which is very, very hard line, very right wing, uh, and uh, is, is way ahead of the rest of South Korea in its animosity towards uh, North Korea. So... Uh, The plot, I mean, uh, 20 plots going on, spies, agencies, defectors, this kind of thing. Yeah. uh, Always pressure.
1: Mm. Well, um, so now, uh, oh, man, I just had a great question and completely uh, escaped my brain there. Um, Well, I guess. So let's talk about their nukes until I think of what my great question was going to be. Uh, They got some. They keep testing them. They claim that they can miniaturize them. Uh, at this point, uh, meaning I guess plutonium implosion bombs that they could put on the tip of a missile. Uh, how good are their missiles?
3: Not very good. Um, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, like their nukes. Like their no, Ours, ours in the U.S. are no great shakes either. They they sometimes misfire, but by and large, uh, the North uh, North Korea's missile force is primitive. They're all sort of uh, jumped-up uh, scud missiles, uh, many are liquid-fueled, ha- hence very vulnerable, they have to be fueled on the launching pads, and uh, the North Koreans would be very, very reluctant to fire any number of these missiles, even with nuclear warheads, because it might not work, and they will certainly invite uh, the vaporization of North Korea by U.S. forces. Yeah.
1: You know, I uh, realized why I forgot my question before. It's because it wasn't a great one. It was completely stupid. I was going to say, yeah, but haven't you ever heard of Munich? These people only understand one thing, force. And so what are you suggesting we do, you coward? Negotiate?
3: Well, that's the standard neocon response. But uh, the point uh, of the matter is that North Korea has for decades sought recognition by the United States. It sought a non-aggression pact. Please stop trying to overthrow us. Please stop your crushing economic embargo of North Korea and your attempts to destabilize and subvert the country. Uh, this is what North Korea is asking for. The U.S. will not give this and uh, keeps t- turning the screws on North Korea. And the South Koreans are divided. Half of the South Koreans, who are primarily South Korean Christians, uh, are uh, very, very anti-North Korea. They don't want any any deals with them. The other half, the more Buddhist South Koreans, uh, uh, favor some kind of reunification with North Korea and an ending of these tensions. And when you know when I go to Korea, uh, the the panic and the animosity is a much lower level than it is in the United States, where Fox News is beating the war drums.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, interesting because you could see how, okay, well, the Navy and the Air Force and the Army, for that matter, these guys like being useful, they like having a mission, and, and they don't want it to go away. And yet, now that George W. Bush successfully pushed North Korea out of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and their safeguards agreement, and they've gone ahead and made nuclear weapons... For America to continue this posture like we're India and Pakistan at this point, where now they can lord vision over us, too, or at least over our South Korean allies. And Seoul is right there near the DMZ, by the way, everybody who doesn't have a map in front of them or know about it. Uh, Seoul, I mean, maybe they'd have to drive their nuke there in a flatbed truck, but they might be able to get it there. It ain't too far. Um, that- and so cool. it just seems cool. crazy that they would continue the old brinksmanship when now it's the new mutually assured destruction era. You know what I mean? But nothing seems to have changed on this side.
3: Well, no, because keeping uh, the, the demons in uh, North Korea uh, front and center very important for U.S. foreign policy because uh, what justifies the, the formidable American military presence in South Korea, uh, 28,000 troops and air bases, naval bases in the region, American forces in Okinawa and in Guam and American bases and forces in Japan, uh, all areas occupied at the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. So how does America justify keeping them there? Well, the North Korean threats, right. that's
1: fine. Right. All right. So, more uh, Eric Margulies in one sec, y'all. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism vs. Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism vs. Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, you guys. Welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with the great Eric Margulies. That's funny. Right now, Eric, on CNN, they got a reporter in with the moderate rebels, and yet she's dressed, you know, not quite in a burqa, but... She sure is dressed like she's under the rule of the Islamic state. I wouldn't I didn't think it was like that in Damascus right now, but uh, apparently in moderate rebel held Syria, ISIS dress rules apply for the women. Uh anyway, little off topic. Uh at the uh at the break there, uh you were explaining cuz I was saying it doesn't make sense, man, when they got nukes now because it's all George W. Bush's fault that Hey, okay, so we gotta back off a little bit and we gotta recognize the reality that, you know, tough talk is tough talk, but fission is fission. And so, come on, let's be adults about this. And you're saying no, because. The empire needs an excuse to exist in this, in the Pacific. And so, I mean, China is a pretty good boogeyman, but North Korea is a great one too, and especially for the bogus missile defense. You didn't say that, but I'm calling it bogus. You mentioned the missile defense in here. That's a huge interest, uh, in terms of money stolen out of the treasury every year, et cetera, like that. And it, there's just too much vested interest in keeping the North Koreans as an, as an official enemy on the, I guess, Western coast of America's lake, the Pacific Ocean. Is that right?
3: That's right, Scott. We're uh, we the U.S. We're running out of enemies, and uh, I mean big enemies. Uh, we need to, we need some sizable ones to justify our increases in military spending. And you know, uh, rushing new military systems into North North Asia is great because uh, the Chinese are screaming uh, like crazy, and we can always cite. The threat of North Korea that justifies sending in more weapons. And the latest American proposal, uh, to put in the THAAD, T-H-A-A-D high altitude anti-missile system into South Korea is really, uh, full of water because, uh, this system is designed to intercept intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, North And it's so supposedly to protect South Korea, but uh, but North Korea is only 30, 40 miles away. They don't need long-range missiles to attack South Korea. Uh, and uh, the missile system implanted in South Korea with its radars is too close uh, to North Korea. Anyway, it, what it's really designed for is to begin building a system against the Chinese. The Chinese know this very well mm-hmm. and in high dudgeon over this.
1: Right. Well, and there's a couple of very important things there. First of all, it doesn't work. It ain't never going to work. The only test where they've ever pretended it worked was when they were pretending, and the missiles met at predetermined coordinates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The whole thing is a ridiculous fraud. Unless you know better than that, I'd be happy to hear it. But then the other thing is that You know, you call it missile defense and it sounds pretty good, but it's a bit different when you put it in the context of wearing armor to a fist fight. It makes it easier to start a war if you think you have first strike capability and that even with their few dozen operational nukes that the Chinese have on ready, that they won't be able to hit back because we'll be able to shoot down anything they try to hit back with. That makes Donald Trump feel, you know, even better about himself than he already did, you know, kind of thing.
3: Well, the big, the, the really vulnerable country in all of this is not the United States. Uh, the North Koreans really don't have the capability of seriously
1: attacking. Oh, I was talking them. about China. Yeah, I, I for know. For the that. bad thing. But I
3: was coming to the point, the, the vulnerable Sorry. country is, is Japan. Uh, Japan is completely naked to threats of attack by nuclear missiles, nuclear arms missiles. And the Japanese have got to do something to put up a a workable missile defense system. It doesn't have to be Star Wars, but it's something closer to what the Israelis have developed, and their system appears so far to work well that we haven't seen it tried against intermediate-range ballistic missiles. Uh, Japan needs something. Right now, it has to rely entirely on the United States for uh, limited missile defense.
1: Yeah. Well, and, yeah, extremely limited for the price anyway. I don't know. Um, All right. Now, so um, I guess I want to uh, ask you also about what you said about the North Koreans' willingness to negotiate. And just from a devil's advocate position, I want to make sure that I heard you right, that... It isn't just that you think that, come on, man, they'll negotiate. We have all this power, and they don't, and they sure could use an opening and some recognition here. It's not that. You're saying you know for a fact that, no, really, historically, they have been very willing to officially end the Korean War, and they've said all they want is, well, like Kennedy gave the Cubans, a promise to not overthrow them.
3: Yeah, they want respect, and they want this this non-aggression
1: So this isn't a a supposition of yours. This is the real history.
3: This is real history. And you know, uh, we were, as you mentioned, uh, somewhat close to this goal during the uh, Bush Bush administration uh, when serious talks got underway. But what happened was that the neocons who infested the whole Bush government thwarted uh, the North Korean uh, talks. And uh, antagonized the North Koreans to the point where they started having a tantrum again. And they, they were afraid that North Korean missile technology would somehow get to the Arabs and threaten Israel. So this became a major issue.
1: Mm-hmm. And, oh, you're talking at the end after they changed back to trying to deal? Or are you talking in the first place?
3: Uh, in, uh, in both places, uh, the deal started and then they backed off on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it. yeah, it was, I guess, John Bolton and his hawks at the State Department that really exactly. botched everything there in 02. Yep, and, and I think any telling of that story, even if uh, one presumes the existence of the uranium enrichment program, which I don't think there's any evidence that they had anything like that up and going at that point. They had bought some junk from AQ Khan, but that doesn't mean that they had had it up and running at that point. But even if they had, they still could have negotiated. I mean, the Bush administration, and you may be right that it got out of his control and Rice's control or whoever, but they really forced the North Koreans out of the deal that uh the clinton administration had made like a kick to the chest i mean there's they just did not have to do it and it and it only made sense if they knew for a fact that they were going to go ahead and go to war against north korea next year anyway or something like that but that wasn't a safe bet so all they did was basically hand them a dozen nukes eric
3: well they they probably could have stopped it but they didn't and uh they know that the North Koreans are never going to use these nukes, except in extremis. That's if we, in the event of an American or South Korean attack on North Korea, that the North Koreans might, as a last resort, uh, start using their nukes. Uh, other than that, they're not about to start firing nukes at, at North America, as some silly American generals have claimed, uh, because, you know, two or three nukes, big deal, they they... May manage to wipe out uh, uh you know San Diego, but at the same time North Korea's going to be wiped off the map by American nuclear retaliation
1: yeah, that's American military math. you know what we might lose San Diego, but you know other than that it'll be fine. Uh, it must be fun to think that way, you know I've seen dr Strange's love, but. Um, In fact, I just read a thing the other day where they said that a lot of the craziest phrases in there, that uh, Kubrick had taken that stuff out of Albert Wohlstetter and the other nuclear warfare theorists, and he didn't even need to write the humorous lines. He just had to have them say this stuff word for word in deadpan, you know?
3: That's right. You know, and interestingly, we never got the same kind of rabid craziness from the Soviets, I don't recall any Soviet theorists or writers who were, uh, you know, happily contemplating uh, nuclear warfare at different levels. The uh, the Soviets were horrified by this, but uh, we in the United States entertain this view, and this kind of strategic craziness continues to our day.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I guess my guess is that the average American must – think it's kind of a mystery why, I mean, if they'd know, and I think probably most people have heard, right, or many people have heard that we don't have a real end to the Korean War, that we're still still technically at war with a mere ceasefire agreement here. And I guess because we're the Americans, the assumption's got to be it's because of the North Koreans and whatever their problem is, but... I think that would be, you know, the real bottom line of this interview is, as you're explaining, is it really doesn't have to be this way at all. Any president, Republican, Democrat, whoever could go right over there and get this worked out in, in pretty much a moment's notice. Is that what you're saying, Eric?
3: Yes, I am. I think the North Koreans would be thrilled to be finally made kosher and whole and invited to Washington, and, uh,
1: you know, let's let's bury the hatchet. Yeah, but ask Gaddafi. You know what comes next, the stab in the back. you better off our enemy, <laughs> or else we're going to get you. Good point.
3: You're right on target.
1: <laughs> All right, that's the heroic Eric Margulies, everybody. EricMargulies.com and Uns.com. Thanks, Eric. Cheers, Scott.